You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. We're going to continue in our in our worship as we go to God's Word. We are looking at some of the one another passages in Scripture. Uh, these are God's instructions in the New Testament to for how how we are to relate to one another. So these are kind of like family meetings uh, in a sense where. There's a lot of time we talk about how God has called and equipped us to to reach the world, to spread the gospel, to speak to those who are outside of the church. Uh, But then there's about 100 commands in Scripture in the New Testament alone for how we are to relate to one another, and that's what we're talking about these few weeks. Uh, We're going to go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 1 through 11, and read our passage for this morning. Let's turn our attention to God's Word. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them, as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. This is God's word. Well, today we look at the instruction to encourage one another and build one another up. And the truth of the matter is, no matter who you are or what your life story is, if you live long enough, you will experience both joyful bliss in this life and devastating loss. How'd you like that on a fortune cookie? (laughs) Prosperity and friendship are in your future, and so is pain and disappointment. That seems a little bit more realistic of an approach to take for our life. And how we react to these challenges and these realities in our life will differ, will vary from person to person. But one thing remains the same for every single one of us. None of us can get too much encouragement or comfort. Because the reality is life is hard. And so we need to encourage one another. And no person is more equipped and has more of the resources available to him or her than a follower of Jesus to be a person of encouragement, one who builds up, one who comforts and restores. In fact, the fundamental goal of this passage, the author Paul is writing to this church, the fundamental goal is to, is, is to equip them to be people who know how to encourage in the midst of pain and disappointment and, and betrayal and agony. And so written to the Christians in the first century, he's wanting to develop every Christian, every single Christian, as a person who knows why to encourage and how to encourage in the face of grief. And so this is the goal for us as well, to be people who know how to encourage and why to encourage, to be people of encouragement for one another, to 
expand our ability to be people of encouragement. And so here's what we look at in our passage. It reveals three things. We look at the human challenge. We look at the presence of God's past, present, and future grace. And then we look at the believer's charge. Finally, how we become those people. And so let's look at the human challenge. What is the human challenge? We've talked briefly about it already. Just about everything in our life that makes life wonderful and full and rich and meaningful uh, has a painful downside. Family, friendship, career, uh, even a beautiful sunny day. Just want to go outside and enjoy the weather. And then there's like bugs and <laughs> even a new puppy. Every single person who gets a new puppy says, why did we do this? <laughs> it all comes with pain. All the things that make life joyful have a downside to them. And what this means, unfortunately, is that it's really, really hard to be really happy for really long. <laughs> I thought this was a sermon on encouragement. It is. It is a sermon on encouragement. The reason that we need to be encouraged is because this is a reality. This is the human problem. This is the, the universal problem of our lives, is that it's hard to stay on that path of happiness. It's hard to be in that place because life is tough with plenty of pain that comes our way, and we will experience a whole lot of hurt. Consider the characters in our passage this morning. It's been maybe 20 years uh, for them, for these first century Christians. 20 years since Jesus was crucified. And he was buried, he rose from the grave, and before he ascended into heaven, he promised to return to them one day to give them eternal life. 20 years has passed, and now these same Christians are watching their family members and friends grow sick and die. And they're saying, where is God? Where is he? He said he would come back so that we could experience eternal life. And now they are dying. And they say, was it all a joke? Was it all fake? Should we continue to wait for him? They are in despair. They are suffering. They are grieving. And now, possibly for the first time, for the first time ever since the ministry of Jesus, loved ones are experiencing loss and grief that they never thought that they would, losing one another, pain, sadness of relationships being torn from them, facing persecution. And Jesus said, I will come and I will, I will protect you and I will bring you to myself and I will be with you and I will defeat your enemies. And these Christians are being driven out of their homes. They are, they're, they're, their homes are being burned. Their family members and friends are being slaughtered. They're being driven from their comfort and they are being, and now they're very confused. And Jesus isn't back. And they are wondering the same thing that you and I wonder even to this day, many, many years later, when we encounter disappointment and grief in our life. They are asking, where is God in all of this? Where is God, and why isn't this turning out the way that I thought he would have it turn out for me? So this passage really exposes a kind of a double kind of suffering that happens when you and I experience hardship in our life. There is the first kind of hardship. It's the suffering itself, right? It can be the loss of a job, a reputation, loss of control, loss of friendship, relationship. And then there's the suffering that happens when we have difficulty seeing God's purpose in it. There's all that psychological suffering that comes with it, all of the grieving, all of the depression, all of the anxiety, the discontentment, 
all of the sleepless nights, all of the worry. And we, we think on our trouble. We, the, the trouble begins to take claim of our thought life. It's all that dominates our whole life. When we are suffering and in pain, it's all that we can think about. It takes hold of our emotions. It's all that we can feel. It paints everything that we say and do to others. Our suffering begins to even rewrite how we think about the future. In light of our, our loss or our suffering, how will our future look differently now? We start to think everything from career to our uh, finances, our hope, our relationships. Our whole life is upside down and spinning out of control. We have trouble sleeping. And if we do manage to fall asleep at all, we wake up in the middle of the night thinking about it, or it's the first thing we think about when the alarm goes off. Our trouble greets us. It's the last thing that we think about when we put our head on the pillow. It's the first thing that greets us in the morning. And we grow increasingly anxious and discontent, and the blessings we once enjoyed seem dull, and God's voice seems very, very quiet. Am I describing any one of your lives? Unfortunately, if we live long enough, that's a description of every single one of our lives. And those who suffer have often misunderstood or even are misunderstood or even ignored because we don't know how to deal with suffering people. It's uncomfortable and awkward. We don't know what to say or do. And so there's an additional kind of suffering for people who are suffering, and that's isolation and loneliness. They often feel very alone. Some might say, I'm not that troubled. I, when I'm bothered, yeah, things happen. Life is hard, and I get disappointed. But when I'm bothered, I, I just find something to distract me. I go in the garage, work on my car, I scrapbook. Uh, those usually aren't the same people. Uh, <laughs> You know, I get, I get lost, and I just get trapped in hours of Instagram reels, you know, whatever. Maybe that's you. I just disconnect. I, 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 I occupy myself with something to distract me. Some might ignore or escape their, their feelings um, through feel-good habits of entertainment, of food, alcohol, drugs. And that works for a bit, and you can make... And you can mute that sound of pain in your life a little bit. And you could keep it at arm's length. And you're like, I'm not really dominated by those feelings because I just kind of keep them at arm's length. But Scripture never applauds those who are good at, sh at not showing their pain. Scripture never commends escape into isolation because of our pain. And so we're confronted here with this human problem. That is universal for all of us. The human problem is that pain is universal, and it often causes us to either obsess over our suffering, to compulsively avoid it, or to work hard to please God to take our pain away. Which one are you? Do a little diagnostic on your life. As we experience pain, which, which do we naturally go to? We obsess, obsess over it. We avoid it. We plead with God to take our pain away. And you're saying, is there an all three option? Consider how the Christians in our passage do all three of these things. They obsess over their suffering by analyzing when Jesus will return. Maybe if we can figure out exactly when he's coming back, then we won't be as anxious. We won't worry about it. They're obsessing over the day of Jesus' return, when their suffering would come to an end. Because then we know when he comes back, we'll believe all that he has told us, and our suffering will come to an end. And so we need to figure out when that happens. We need to figure out when it will occur. Their conversations, their emotions, their actions, everything is dominated by this. When will Jesus come back? 
Maybe if they knew if he, when he would return, it would take away their fear and discouragement in their life. We do that. We do that quite a bit. We understand, if we can understand every angle of our pain, every detail of our struggle, if we can understand every motive of a person that's hurting us, or every detail of how to pick up the pieces of our life once they've fallen apart, if we can figure it all out, then we will find contentment. Then we will be okay. We obsess. And that works just about as good as, I don't know, taking cheese for nausea, which doesn't work. <laughs> makes, it, makes it worse. Think about it. I Googled, what's the worst thing for nausea? Cheese. Um, because Paul says trouble comes like a thief in the night. Trouble comes like labor pains, which means they're unavoidable and they come unexpectedly. You could obsess over your life, you can obsess over your struggle, you can analyze all the details of what to do next. And the reality is, but it's like a thief, we don't see it coming. No one puts in our calendar, you know, nervous breakdown tomorrow at 2 p.m. These things can, are not planned. Trouble comes. God can't be manipulated, he can't be persuaded from his plans. We can't manage it and we can't control it. Others in our passage compulsively avoid it. They avoid the problem altogether. You know, Paul, the author, uses the reality of death as a metaphor for how some live in the present in relationship to their trouble and their anxiety and discontentment. He says in verse 6, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. And it's, it's almost like they're saying, but that's exactly what we don't want to do. We don't want to be aware we don't want to be alert. We don't want to think. We don't want to be present. Because to be present in this, to be awake and alert and sober in this is so scary. It just reminds me of my pain. I want to go to sleep. I want to disconnect. I want to avoid it. And so here there's this kind of mental intoxication that happens when we suffer. We become numb we block out our emotions and we become numb to our senses, and which lures us into being a person that is just careless in all that we do. Kind of drunkenness. And Paul says, but let us be sober. Let us be alert. Let us be honest with how we are feeling. Let us confront our pain. Let us be humble in our need. Let us not pretend that things are not hard, but let's face it head on because it is there where God meets us. You know, others who are confused to see good Christians have bad things happen to them. You know, maybe you're in, in that camp because they thought that if they trusted God, then good things would happen to them. And now many of them who had put their faith in Jesus and believed in him, and believed in his promises, are now experiencing really bad things in their life. And they're thinking, what gives? There was even a point in my life where I even said to God, and I believe it was even out loud one day in my room, after all I have done for you, this is how you repay me. Have you ever felt that way? But I thought I was loved by you, and I'm a good Christian, and I follow you, and, and this is how you repay me, a life of pain. And what we see in Scripture here and elsewhere that some of God's most beloved children live lives filled with physical pain, poverty, loneliness, betrayal, and disappointment. And then there are some people who seem unusually blessed. 
who are arrogant and prideful and constantly at odds with God. What do we make of that? We make it that, that, that we cannot, we should not understand God's disfavor in our life by assessing how difficult our lives may be, nor should we misunderstand God's favor in our life by assessing how trouble-free our life is. There's a different, different way to understand our pain than trying to control, trying to ignore, trying to manipulate God or obsess over our suffering and be dominated by it. There's another way to approach it. We can find freedom from obsessing over it. We, can, we don't have to avoid it. And we don't have to twist God's arm to remove it. And so we turn our focus to, as our passage does, to the presence of God's past, present, and future grace in our life. This is where Paul goes, the presence of God's past, present, and future grace in our life. This is the other way. This is the other option. Though our pain gives us reason to react poorly, we have a much better way to respond when things happen that are hard. And that is to grasp the presence of God's grace in what he has done, what he is currently doing, and what he promises he will do, that he will complete in us. The heart of this passage is articulated in verse 9 through 10, where it says this, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Notice how this passage has all the tenses in it. The past, the present, and the future. God has done something in the past that has enduring effect in your life. Paul is drawing our attention to look at what God has done. And that effect is in your life still. And look at what God will do, his future promise, to obtain for you a salvation that's imperishable and complete and perfect. And then there's this present relationship that is unfolding as he speaks. All the tenses are in there. God is working in all dimensions of time. Notice also another thing, the language of presence. The language of God's location, Jesus' location in our life. Where is he? Because when we, when we are going through suffering and pain, we ask God, where are you? And he responds with, I've always been perfectly and completely with you. Before you were born, I marked you with my love. I was there at the cross bearing your sin, taking your sin upon myself. I am with you now, walking the road of suffering that you walk. And I will never leave you as I accomplish the plans that I have for you. He's everywhere that we are. God is speaking to us in our pain, and he wants us to hear what he is saying. And he says, I am with you, I have been with you, and I will never leave you. I will never be absent from you. This is the central promise in all of the scriptures. The central promise and the central encouragement in all of the scriptures is that God is with us. It is the solution to our problems. It is the key that unlocks every door. It is the thing that removes our fear. Is that God is present with us. 
fully, fully visible, fully shown in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Emmanuel literally means God with us, that God would come to be with us, presenting himself to us, taking on the form of a human. Let's dig deeper into specifically what that means. It means despite what you and I feel as a result of our circumstances, we believe this truth that God is with us. Because listen, this, this is true. Pain and suffering of any kind will naturally trigger a flood, and hear me out on this, a flood of horrible reactions and behaviors. <laughs> That's what pain does. When you're hurting, you're going to act irrationally. When you're suffering, it will trigger a natural response of foolishness, of sin, of reactions and behaviors and attitudes that are bad. And so we need to remember what is true. To say that God is with us is to say you're not alone, you're not abandoned, you're not ignored, you're not forgotten, no matter what has happened, no matter what is happening now, no matter what, is, what it is you are afraid of happening in the future, you're still in God's hands. When we suffer, it will feel that we've been destined for wrath. And that's why Paul makes a point to say, you're not destined for wrath. We feel that in our suffering, we're destined for wrath. That's when we say, um, this is just my life. It's meant to be disappointing. This is my life. I'm supposed to hurt. This is what God wants for me. He doesn't care for me, and my life is just going to be difficult. Maybe this is just what I, this is just the way it's supposed to be. And so God speaks to us and says, this is not your destiny. Your destiny is not failure. Your destiny is not loneliness. It's not weakness. Your destiny is not decay. Your destiny is not betrayal and disappointment and pain and suffering. Your destiny is salvation in every way. Salvation in every way. To be saved from all the things that destroy and hurt and harm and disappoint. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. I've said it before. I'll say it again. There is no Christianity without the word but. Right? There is no... You cannot describe... B-U-T, one T, kids. I hear some snickering. There's, there, you cannot describe the good news without the word but. There's no comfort and encouragement without the word but. What God has done, is doing, and will do alters the impact and outcome of everything that happens to you in your life. Consider your current disappointment. Consider your pain. You will dwell on that pain. You will wonder what if. You will wonder what will be. You will wonder and obsess over what is. And it is here that we will challenge God by asking him, are we destined for wrath? And he will say, you are not destined for wrath. But you are destined for salvation through Jesus Christ. Not through your hard work. Not through your character, not through your record, not through you figuring out why this pain has happened, but because of what Jesus has purposed to do for you. And that is to bring, him, bring you to himself. The whole purpose of our salvation 
is to be fully and completely in the presence of God. So that no matter whether we are asleep or awake, we are with him. We are with him. Paul puts it another way in a previous verse. He says, to die in Christ. What does it mean that Christ died for us? And this is a doorway to encouragement. Paul says, to die in Christ. And it means that if you are a Christian, you trust in what Jesus has done for you on the cross, dying in your place for your sins, God looks at you as if you have died on the cross and paid the sins yourself. So he looks at you as if you have paid the penalty fully for your sins, and therefore there is no condemnation, there is no more debt to pay, there is no more reconciliation that needs to happen between you and God, there is peace, there is wholeness, there is friendship, there is love. What does it mean to be raised? It means complete renewal of body, mind, and soul, so much so that God delights in you completely, and I want you to hear this, he delights in you completely as if you have never done anything wrong. Hard to believe. But that's the destiny he has marked for us. He has not destined us for wrath. He has destined us for salvation. And that means that when Jesus died for us on the cross, our sins died, we died with him. And that means as if that God looks at us as if we had never sinned. We are the objects of his full affection, his full love, his full acceptance, his full grace. For the one who trusts in Jesus, a door of encouragement has been opened in the midst of suffering. How do we open that door when we are discouraged, when we are disappointed, when we are in pain? And we're just banging our head on that door, and it just won't open. That door is open because of what Jesus has done for us. Christ died for us, so whether we suffer or rejoice, we will be with him and he will be with us. The union between Christ and Christians is a bond so radical, so permanent, that it changes everything in our lives and how we experience everything that happens to us. It colors everything in our life. Every experience it alters. And for us, we get one of two options. For all people, we get one of two options when we encounter pain in our life. We get to base our encouragement in the midst of suffering on one of two things, our record or Jesus' record. And so we can either look at our pain and say, this will get better because of the person I have been or will be, and that just leads us often into further despair, because often the pain we're experiencing is because of our record and our sin and our failure. And so when we think more on ourselves, we say, well, well, I'm a failure, I can't fix this. And then we get to turn to the record of Jesus. That he died in our place, that he was sinless in all that he did, that he takes our sin to give us his righteousness. David Polison, in a book called God's Grace and Your Suffering, he writes this, In God's hands, experiences of suffering purify you. His love works to take away what is wrong with you. See, Jesus was condemned so that we could be forgiven. Jesus was cursed on the cross so we could be blessed. Jesus' blood was given so that we could be made pure. Jesus is risen so that we could be given new life. And all of this has this eye on the future, and that is where we want to turn our eye as well 
It means that, that God is on our side and he's working in the midst of our life, but that's not all he is doing. He's using our suffering to also bring about his plans for us. God is not just pleased and content with, with the past work and present work in our life. He will finish what he started. And our suffering is a way of purifying us, dismantling the idols in our heart that we have trusted in, putting God back in the rightful place that he belongs in our life. The outcome of suffering, God tells his people, is a growing love and joy for God in Christ and a more sincere love for others. It's a deeper and more mature trust in God. Virtually, in our suffering, God is shaping us to be more like Jesus. He's bringing about his full agenda in our life. Consider the things that that you are prone to struggle with, obsessing concern with money or possessions, fear of what people think of you, judgmentalism or irritability when people do things that you don't like or hold views that you disagree with, forgetfulness of God to the point where your life centers on you rather than centers on God. You just don't think about them. Envy of others or fear of loss of control of the details of your life and so many more things. In the midst of pain, that God, what God does is he pries from our hands all of those idols that we were trusting in for our hope. And God is bending back the fingers that are tightly gripped on all of these idols so that they can be released, so that he can put in our hands his fullness and his love. In the midst of pain, he does this and he says to us, you are mine, I am with you, so do not be afraid. I will complete what I have begun in you. And so you see that what we hope in will drive our lives. It will drive our thoughts. It will drive our actions and behaviors and attitudes. It will drive our relationships. What we hope in will drive everything we do. And if we hope in Christ and what he has done for us, it will drive what we do. If our hope rests in the absence of pain, then you and I will be dominated by despair. If, if that is our goal, if our goal is comfort, if our goal is the absence of pain, then we will be always disappointed. If our hope, though, rests in the presence of God's grace, then a door of comfort is constantly open constantly open. There's a constant stream of God's encouragement to us. We are never without hope. I want to end with a believer's charge. You know, this passage ends with that key instruction, uh, therefore encourage one another and build up one another. You know, the fundamental goal of this passage is, is, is to act as a stimulus for God's people for mutual encouragement so that we would be people who Encourage one another. I really debated whether or not I should say what I'm about to say, and that's how you know I probably shouldn't say it. <laughs> but I'm going to say it, of course. There's a lot of people, a lot of similar people in this room. Obviously, there's some differences, but there's a lot of people that, you know, similar age, my age. People our age are really bad at encouraging. That was one of the terrifying things about being a pastor of people my own age, because I know that my generation 
is not encouraging. You know who I like to pastor? People like 65 and older. Because they just, they feel something good, they say it, they encourage. And kids, no, kids will tell the truth. They're not very encouraging. (laughs) (laughs) So I wonder as I prepared this, and I'm speaking to myself as I speak to you, I wonder if maybe there's some exhortation here for us, like if we can be more encouraging. Because I think what, and it's not that we're cruel, you know, I think there's a tendency as we look upon the struggles of others and we feel awkward, and we say, well, they're probably okay. They probably have people in their life that are speaking into them, and so we don't say anything. And so the fundamental goal for us is that we would be people who encourage one another. Could that mark your life? Could that mark our generation? oh, you know what marks the generation of today? Encouragement. Yeah, right. (laughs) That is not true. Individualism, self-centeredness, pride. Most of us respond very poorly to people who are suffering. And that's something I can just get out in the open too. People feel awkward around suffering people and and don't know what to say. People might offer a thousand suggestions and fixes for the problem. People might focus solely on the problem and all and and not the psychological suffering that results from it like isolation and fear and loneliness and grief and depression and anxiety. Some might just pray that God takes away the pain altogether. We just don't know what to do. So let's draw some applications from our passage. Let's give some these are, this is not an exhaustive list, but I wanted to think of some practical things to give you. You can write them down. Here are some things that we can do to be an encouragement God's way. First is that we can commend others for honestly facing weakness and pain. Because this is an encouragement. When, when, when we commend and encourage a humble and honest approach to the pain in our life, to honestly face pain, is to be like Jesus, who honestly felt the weight of the things in his life. And it aroused deep anguish and struggle. He was a man well acquainted with grief. He was a man of sorrows. He he felt the weight of sin. He felt the struggle of the human life. And the scriptures speak into it, meaning that it never dismisses pain. It never, uh, it never uh, marks it as fantasy, but says what you are feeling is a very human and real way to respond as someone who is broken in their life, who lives in a broken world waiting for God to make it better. Life is hard. And so one of the ways that we can encourage people and come alongside them is not help them try to ignore their pain, but to commend them for taking a step into acknowledging how they feel. Second, we could remind others that we serve a God who cares for us. You know, the ultimate goal of our salvation is our unhindered fellowship with God who loves us. And I promise you, when we are struggling, the first thing that goes in our life is a sense that God cares for us. And so we need people in our life to say, God cares for you. I don't know how he's going to show that. I don't know what's going to happen or how he's going to answer our prayers, but God has not forgotten you. Pain triggers a flood of negative and bad reactions, as I mentioned. A, a flood, like our natural response to pain is not rationality. It's not faith. It's not trust and hope. It's not 
optimism. It's so easy to say when we see something discouraging happen to someone, oh, that, that person seems like they have it pretty well handled. I'm, I'm sure they're, they're fine. But, but if we know that our natural response to pain is a flood of negative reactions, it's a better probability that when someone is hurting, they're not doing okay. But often we look at someone's hurt and say, they probably are doing okay. When the truth of the matter is, they're probably not doing okay. They probably need to be built up. They probably need encouragement. They probably need someone to come along and say, God hasn't forgotten you. Jesus is still for you. You're not alone. And the God who loves you will not give up on his plans for you. We can pray for others, obviously, knowing that our battles are not against flesh and blood, but our battles against spiritual powers, right? The spiritual forces in our life that desire to rob us of joy and comfort, to rob us of the plans of God, to thwart God's plan in our life. Satan and the enemies of God are constantly at work at making you not enjoy the truth and promises of Jesus in your life. And so when we pray, we are going to battle for others. We are pleading with God to do what he has already promised to do, to minister to them, to comfort them, and to provide for them. Another is that we can be physically present with others as a demonstration of God's spiritual presence, and we can bring practical relief to those who are hurting as a demonstration of both God's presence and his providence. You see, God is with us, and God provides for us. And we are often reminded of those two things when he does that through real human people. When someone is close to a hurting person, it makes them feel like God is a little closer. When someone provides for the practical needs and brings some physical relief, it reminds us that God hasn't forgotten us, but he still cares for us, and he'll give us all that we need. Showing up, you know, with a chocolate bar and putting it on the doorstep to the person who keeps going to their garage working on their car. <laughs> no, probably for the scrapbooking person. I don't know. I like chocolate. Um, FaceTiming. You know, you can't always be physically present. We know that. You can't be physically present at all hours of the day. But there are ways that you can let people know that you haven't forgotten them. And finally, and this is where we'll close, I can't claim this as my own, but something I heard from Pastor Tim Keller, we could remind others that because Jesus died in our place, our bad things will always turn out for good, our good things will never be lost, and our best things are always yet to come. This is the doorway to encouragement. And we can help our friends open that door as they are going through pain by pointing them not to just a better circumstance or reality, but, better, but something even far greater than that. God who is in our life, who stood in our place and faced our worst nightmares and defeated sin and death itself and has promised to never leave us or forsake us.